1: Welcome everybody to this introductory lecture on Yoga for the Aquarian Era. In this talk, we will discuss some important parameters for understanding and experiencing what many have called spiritual awakening. We are going to talk a lot about how to initiate and sustain such a state, how to work with our own psychology, our own bodies, our hearts, by harnessing the energies that we carry within, specifically through spiritual exercises that awaken our full potential. It could be good to examine what spiritual awakening is, because there are many concepts and beliefs, many ideas, many theories, which conflict with each other, which compete with other perspectives, and even paradoxically contradict their own foundations if you ask a person what is spirit you will get many answers people have varying opinions about what spirit is and if those accounts do not concur they don't agree They oppose one another. Then we can arrive to some basic fundamental facts. That such perspectives are flawed. Primarily because genuine spiritual experience is real, is factual, is scientific. It is precise. Divine, mystical, spiritual experiences are based on facts. Repeatable, verifiable, and consistent. The spirit is our own innate reality in our most hidden depths in the synthesis of really who and what we are. But unfortunately, that knowledge tends to be very obscured within most people. We can have a lot of intellectual debates, arguments, assumptions, concepts that seek to label and approach these realities And yet those projections of our own idealism tend to miss a very important point. That point is that reality is, no matter what our beliefs, our convictions, our labels, our language, our culture, our customs, our habits. People do not agree on what spirit is, and therefore we have to be very blunt and honest that such conflicting perspectives do not approach. The facts of what spirit is because it is in an objective spiritual real state we say in our studies that spirit is divinity the divine the truth within a person but as i said because we have many concepts and assumptions, desires, and more specifically, conditions of mind. We don't tend to see what is in front of us and what is within us. Some people think that spirituality is limited to intellectual study, as if reading books, listening to lectures, studying scriptures... And accumulating knowledge, terminology, wisdom, in the mind, constitutes being a spiritual person. However, this type of predisposition fails to take into account that there are other forms of apprehending reality. There are people who approach spirituality from the heart from emotions, from sentiments. Believing that having a dogma or a positive or whatever sentiment in the heart they qualify as spiritual, that devotion is spirituality. However, this is also very limited in its scope. It does not capture the full dynamic range of spiritual expression, and our full human potential. There are those who also think that spirituality is merely adhering to rituals, doing many practices, working with the body, performing austerities physically. But also, this is only one part of a larger whole that should be addressed, that should be taken into context. The truth is that there are many valuable teachings and instructions in the world. Different spiritual movements, teachings and instructions that provide guidance in accordance with the dispositions, the idiosyncrasies of the student, but also the teachers. While it is good to have intellectual knowledge and that it's wonderful to develop the heart, but also to engage with positive practices that exercise the body and keep it healthy, none of these dynamics in themselves should be isolated from the others. And therefore, a balanced human being incorporates every aspect of what we are. Because it's important to develop everything in our constitution. It's not enough to merely exercise the intellect with profound study or cultivate the heart or merely work on the body because that implies a deficiency. It's like going to the gym and only working, up, working out your right bicep and ignoring the other muscles in your body. It would be absurd, obviously, in this example. But this is what we do spiritually. We approach spiritual topics, the mysteries of divinity, of life and death, of mysticism, with a particular idiosyncrasy or psychological crutch. We think that being spiritual is with the intellect, or the heart, or the body. Typically, at the exclusion of everything else. But in our studies, we like to be very holistic. We like to approach the study of the complete human being. Because a balanced human being is necessary in order to really express the Divine. The Spirit what we in our studies call the innermost being, God, according to some traditions. We cannot be a temple of divinity. The divine cannot officiate within us, express, if we are not properly prepared, which is what the purpose of many spiritual teachings have been about to train humanity in certain skills and habits and practices that create a harmonious space within one's own psychology so that we can realize what religion, what yoga have taught, what mystical states are, what awakening is. It's good to also examine this term awakening because there are also many incongruous analyses of this truth, this experience. There are really many types of experiences one can have, but some people traditionally have associated spiritual awakening as some type of inclination towards a teaching, towards metaphysics, towards a religion or mysticism, due to an experience Some of us might have had some type of vision within dreams, an awakening of consciousness within the dream state, or even as simple as a sudden realization that we are more than our body, where we are alert and aware and amplified within our consciousness. We have a magnified perception or perspective of life. But what these experiences indicate is not that we have reached some permanent state of enlightenment. But instead, these are states that are temporary and fleeting. And so, because we are inspired by such realizations, we seek religion. We seek out teachers and teachings to help guide us to understand what these experiences are. it's also important to reflect and remember that awakening occurs in levels and for most people who have had some type of realization or inclination to study religion or spirituality to want to know the spirit the divine are not able to initiate and sustain such states at will and this is the fundamental difference between an aspirant And an initiate. Someone who has begun and cultivated a new way of being. Now we mentioned that we tend to approach traditions based off our conditioning. Perhaps we're more intellectual. Perhaps we're more emotional. Perhaps some of us are more instinctive. We like to do things, to to move, to act. But we have to remember and take into account that in order to really awaken our full potential, we have to be harmonious. We have to have equilibrium. We have to have balance. And this is why we practice many types of exercises that we are going to touch upon today that can aid you in awakening your real capacities for qualities like divine compassion Conscious love, philanthropy, patience, perseverance, diligence, endurance, purity of mind, heart, and body. Which are the requisites for really entering in a competent, efficient, expedient way into these mysteries, into these realities. So that the spirit does not become merely a concept It's something that we verify through scientific facts. And then when we study different traditions, we can verify our own experiences within those teachings. And therefore we develop what's called genuine faith. It's confidence born from experience. It's not adhering to a concept in the mind or a belief in the heart. Or by merely performing by rote certain rituals that are at the forefront of our inherited religion or perhaps adopted one instead through awakening our real potential that is in a dormant sleeping state we come to actualize and really witness profound mysteries that escape people who never even attempt to approach these studies, who are not inspired. In our studies we also talk a lot about spiritual inquietudes, a longing and yearning in the heart. The founder of our tradition, Samalan Vior, wrote in a book The Great Rebellion, a chapter dedicated to this concept, or better said, this reality, how we go through life in a state of slumber. We can be physically active with our body, we can be engaged with life, we can be thinking and memorizing, studying, engaging with others with our emotions, acting physically in the world, and yet we're not really aware of what we're doing. You can examine this in your own life. Why is it that people get into car accidents? They may be driving, but they're thinking of something else. Or you're on the train and you're ruminating in your heart. You're stewing in negative emotions about an event that happened earlier in your day where you were suffering a lot. And then you miss your stop. You forget yourself. You're not present. You're not awake. You're not conscious of what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, where you are at what you were doing, basically. We are in a profound state of slumber, psychologically speaking. Anytime we daydream, fantasize, memorize, or immerse ourselves in memory, ruminate, while we're washing dishes, it means that we're not present. We're not washing the dishes. We're lost in the mind. distracted there are many types of distractions within our own psychology which is something that we address in these studies because our consciousness is not fully integrated it's not directed at will with intentionality and purpose towards specific endeavors we tend to do many things being in the era of multitasking in which we don't really focus on one thing but we are scattered in our attention. We're not really aware. Spiritual discipline and practice helps us to rectify this issue so that we're no longer sleeping as a consciousness. We're paying attention. We're developing our capacities for concentration and comprehension and attention, diligence, real beauty and virtue of the soul. This is what we seek to awaken because the consciousness in its Normal state now is not present. It's not developed to its full potential. So I know that we do have some level of consciousness in our physical bodies when we're in the world. But what we perceive of life tends to be very filtered, very obscured by many conditions of mind. And it is this conditioning that we seek to transform so that we can liberate consciousness develop ourselves into enlightened beings, into a master of one's psychology. So that with those alert, intuitive senses, we can really apprehend the nature of our spirit, the divine, and no longer have any theories or beliefs about it. It's a reality and a fact for us. So what are some methods that we employ in order to achieve a state of being that is conducive for experiencing the spirit, the divine? Many have heard of yoga, but there are many misconceptions about what it really constitutes and its full gamut, its complete range, its many methods. We like to often think of Yoga as physical calisthenics, where we're twisting and distorting the body into different postures to gain flexibility and strength. These are very useful exercises and they're very helpful within the context of a larger spiritual work. Hatha yoga, or the type of yoga that people are already familiar, is appropriate within a specific endeavor. When we're practicing many other principles associated with the tradition. Not merely just trying to have a young, healthy, and attractive body. Because that by itself does not really produce change in a psychological sense. There are health benefits. It's useful. It's good to get those endorphins moving. But it should be utilized with intelligence in remembrance of its overall context. In truth, according to Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, you find the following. Yoga is the stilling of the modifications of consciousness. The term yoga from Sanskrit yug means to reunite. It means to unify the consciousness with the divine. This is the same meaning as the term religion from the Latin religare. Real yoga is stilling the modifications of the consciousness. So as I mentioned, our consciousness is very conditioned. Examine a moment in your life, perhaps in the morning when you get up. What is your routine? What are the thoughts feelings, and habits that you engage with on a day-to-day basis. As I said, we tend not to be very alert and aware of our surroundings. We go through life in a hypnotized state. Our consciousness is modified in accordance with the level of our own psychological conditioning. And we have many elements which produce agitation or conditions, modifications of a pure Perception, because the consciousness in its original form is clear, is lucid, is liberated, it is pristine. It does not involve thought, it is not a churning of emotion. It is not necessarily meaning to have to move the body or to engage in countless activities in life. We can have a simple experience of free consciousness by simply being alert perhaps in a moment of watching a sunrise in which we apprehend the profound beauty of that moment without having to label it, without having to fit it in a box, a category, because that labeling and categorizing and compartmentalizing kills the moment destroys the beauty and the novelty of watching something as miraculous as that. Our consciousness is modified. We are conditioned by many elements like anger and pride, fear, anxiety, vanity, lust, desire, appetites. And in life, we tend to go through our routine, feeding our desires, giving ourselves what our body wants, seeking emotional security in our relationships, and affirmation of our thoughts and ideas. These tend to be very subjective in their own states. They're not necessarily objective and real. While we have these psychological apparatuses, thought, feeling, and impulse, In truth, they tend to be very limited. We go through life, again, as I said, trying to saturate ourselves with the different impressions of life without realizing that we are conditioning ourselves even further. By identifying with the problems and circumstances of life, we have a mind that is really churned and stirred up. If you don't believe me, try sitting to meditate for five minutes after a hectic day. You find that your thoughts are all over the place. Your feelings may be overpowering, debilitating. Maybe a trauma or difficult situation occurred in the day at work or with a a loved one. Or the body can't sit still. We have to to scratch an itch. We have a pain in our leg. We feel like our shoulders are going to fall off. The beginning of real spiritual practice is learning how to still those modifications of consciousness. We have to let the mind, the heart, and the body settle. It's like a container or a jar filled with water and sediment. If the jar is shooken up, all the different mud and particles and debris will flow and scatter and obscure the water itself. It becomes cloudy. It becomes murky. It becomes distorted. However, if you allow the jar to sit still, you find that the water rises to the top and the sediment will begin to stratify into layers. This is the same principle that applies to our mind. If we can learn to take advantage of the challenges of life without identifying with those problems, without investing our psychological energy into them, without wasting energy through fear and paranoia and despair and uncertainty and doubt, we'll begin to find that the contents of our mind, those conditioned Limiting factors begin to calm. They rest. And therefore, when the water is clear of debris, you can see clearly in yourself. This is the beginning of yoga, of genuine spirituality, of religion. It is the stilling of the modifications of consciousness. When the waters are clear and they're calm, serene, tranquil, you can begin to reflect images within their contents. And this is the nature of water. It's a beautiful element, an allegory. It's necessary for life. And it's also necessary for spiritual life. The mind is like a lake. If it's distraught, turbulent, violent, you can't see the heavens reflected within the surface. Therefore, if you want to obtain knowledge of spirituality, of the spirit, first we enter tranquility. This is why Swami Shivananda, a great yogi, a great master of spirituality, taught that real yoga is precisely this, how we work with the mind, how we understand how and why it functions, and the path and methods for alleviating its tensions, letting it to acquiesce, to calm. He states the following in his book, Practical Lessons in Yoga. Patanjali defines yoga as the suspension of all the functions of the mind. As such, any book on yoga which does not deal with these three aspects of the subject, namely mind, its functions, and the method of suspending them, can be safely laid aside as unreliable and incomplete. So there are different schools of yoga that teach exactly what Swami Shivananda provided. He opened many schools, or through his uh, students, they opened many schools in the United States where there are hatha yoga classes, learning to work with the posture in the body. And that is a kind of fish hook to capture people, so to speak, to get people interested in the real deeper knowledge and mysteries of yoga. So it's good to have a healthy body because that helps to have a healthy mind but merely working on the body as a path in itself is unreliable and incomplete. This is why we study many forms of yoga that we are going to talk about today. Now what's interesting is that yoga has a very rich history and tradition, especially from the Hindu pantheon, the Hindu mysteries, and it would be interesting to examine and analyze its development. Within the West. It's true that many great accomplished yogis like Vivekananda came to the United States in 1893 in order to plant the seeds of yoga, of spiritual discipline of mind. He spoke at the World Parliament of Religions at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1893. But it's interesting that those teachings did not really blossom in his era because there were many other practitioners who came to provide spiritual teachings of an Eastern type to a Western disposition. For example, in 1920, Yogananda, who provided the Self-Realization Fellowship or society, also taught. As well as in 1957, a disciple of Swami Shivananda, his name was Vishnu Devananda. Sarasvati, came in 1957 to teach. But those teachings only really came to fruition around February 4th of 1962. And it's a, interesting to examine why. When we study yoga and spirituality, we also study many of the energetic and cosmic influences that penetrate the mind on a subconscious and unconscious level. There are many elements in nature that affect us psychologically and spiritually, even physically, which we're not aware of, that we're not knowledgeable of from experience in a deep spiritual objective sense. What's interesting about February 4th, 1962 is that this was the moment between 2 and 3 in the afternoon in which our solar system entered within the astrological influence and dominion of the sign of Aquarius within the Zodiac. It was in this era or around this time that there have been many changes that occurred. Within diverse traditions, amongst religions, within politics, within sexual relationships. Within many things. Pretty much every level of society has been affected around the 60s with a profound revolution. And if you don't believe me, you can just look at history. The times before the 1960s and even the 1950s. And the way that life subsisted at that time. Now, people of a materialistic attitude don't really look deeper than what can be seen with physical senses. In fact, many people reject the influence of zodiacal energies and forces within nature, which enter within us psychologically and in our transformed in accordance with the level of our conditioning or our developed spiritual consciousness. We might say that such influences are not real, but the truth is that we're affected by nature all the time. We are influenced by the weather. We could be in a really bad mood because it's raining and it's damp out, or we didn't get enough sleep. Perhaps there is a influence of the weather as I said in which we get sick. We get a stomach ache. We feel nauseous. Whatever it may be, we're heavily influenced by our environment. And the same is true on levels that we don't readily perceive in a materialistic sense. But these forces are real. And we can look at history to determine this fact from a zodiacal sense. Now, we previously had existed within the era of Pisces, which was a very different flavor and force in a psychological and spiritual level in terms of its influence and dimensionality. Pisces is traditionally associated with conservatism, with social hierarchies and structures, institutions that have lineages and bear deep and long and extensive histories, You find this in religion, you find this even in politics and every aspect of human life. You find that even in the way that many spiritual traditions used to exist, in which it was required of a disciple, in order to learn these teachings, to submit to a guru. And after proving their candidacy, after many decades of trials, tests, experimentations ordeals challenges and experiences were they really given the most profound radical and transformative practices that are at the heart of all religions and yogas but now the era of Aquarius is very different since the 60s this stellar celestial or zodiacal influence is defined by its revolutionary character it is a rebellion it is a profound and intense energy that has entered as i said within every aspect of society in order to shake things up it is about transformation it's about rebelling against institutions and dogmas against conditions Aquarius is defined as the water bearer, it is the zodiacal sign in which knowledge of a spiritual type is being given openly for free, without demands, without coercion, without strict attendance or affiliation with one group. In the sense that having to adhere to a dogma, an unbreakable faith, a belief system. Instead, Aquarius it is the knowledge that is given freely to all. And this is why, if we look at the nineteen sixties, you find that there is a explosion of information, of knowledge, that is been given openly to society, to all. It is a form of divine generosity. And it also is revolutionary because it is the force that inspires independent thought. Self-reliance, self-verification, personal experience of the truth without having to adhere to a lineage or a dogma, as I said. Now, this influence had really reached its dawn on February 4th of 1962, when you find that the planets of our solar system were in pretty much perfect alignment, maybe off by a few degrees. But this was a true conglomeration of worlds, of celestial bodies and influences that mark the beginning of a new age in which the force of Aquarius predominates. But that influence also came even earlier, maybe by a decade or two, because just in the same manner that you watch a sunrise, the light doesn't really peak at the horizon until the moment the sun appears. The light spreads gradually, such as in the 50s you find And even earlier, the efforts of many yogis and practitioners to spread spirituality in in America. But that didn't really come to fruition until about the 50s and the 60s. On February 4th, 1962, the real beginning of that influence emerged upon the event horizon or the horizon of our consciousness. So we study this influence because it helps to explain different traditions in the past. It also explains where we're at now and what we can do and what we can become. There have been different periods of instruction for humanity in accordance with Piscean influence, especially in the last age, which, as I said, was marked by its conservatism in which knowledge was not given openly but had to be earned. Now, the knowledge is being given openly in Aquarius, without needing to be earned. It's given for free because, unfortunately, humanity is not in a very good place. We find a lot of suffering and affliction on this planet, a lot of chaos, primarily because of our egotism, our conditions, our selfishness, which is accelerating. So as I said, the influence of Aquarius is very revolutionary. That force is channeled in accordance with our level of being. If we are negative, angry, violent people inside, then that energy is going to bring it out. But without the proper tools and techniques to channel this force and to harness it with intelligence and wisdom, we often will destroy ourselves. And we can see this is happening simply by looking at the news. Many events are occurring in which this is a reality. It is a fact. But by learning how to employ the instructions of mastering this influence, we in turn have a force, an impetus, That produces an expedient change, a radical change, very quickly. If we know the methods, the techniques of this era, to capitalize on that influence. There's a saying by the author M in The Dayspring of Youth where he describes this Aquarian influence. He calls it the Dayspring of Youth. Samal and Vior refer to that influence as the Dionysian wave the influence of Dionysus, who is considered the god of wine and revelry. And this is a very interesting symbol. Because since the sixties, which is known for its bacchanalias or sexual revolutions, its free love initiatives and movements, we find that people have been indulging in that power, that potency, but through desires. However, there is another way. It doesn't necessarily have to be about engaging with and feeding one's desires and habits, one's lusts. Instead, one can take that energy and use it to create a different type of inebriation, a different type of wine, so to speak. Because Bacchus or Dionysus within the Greek and Roman traditions, the same symbol, represent how that force of Aquarius can be harnessed in two ways, whether for our spiritual development or for our deepened conditioning and suffering. But of course, in accordance with each cosmic era, there are different periods of instruction, as I said. The author M. states the following in the Dayspring of Youth. At the beginning and end of each age, there is a pouring forth of hierarchical cosmic streams of energy, and as they intermittently enter the earth's atmosphere and unite, we find in this radiation that instruction best fitted for the time. Thus there is brought to birth a new period of discovery for the world. This new force called by Initiates, the Dayspring of Youth, has been in activity for some time, and they who respond to it and practice this Western Yoga can enter the new era and become its instrument. This force, now working over Western Europe and America, possesses a new vitality and energy, that will bring about a severance from past and inherited conditions. Minds that respond to it are clarified, and any opposition within the atmosphere of the mental body or the mind can no longer imprison them within its rebellious aura, for practice of this yoga attracts an atomic energy of a finer nature and transmutes the consciousness. If we learn how to cultivate this energy, we develop clarity, perception, awakening in a positive sense in which we have greater understanding and intuition of how to solve the problems of our life. We don't have confusion. We don't have pain or despair. It's such a powerful force that any opposition within the atmosphere of the mind can no longer imprison them within its rebellious aura. So right now our mind is a prison. If we're honest, we tend to be afflicted by many sufferings. But there is a way to rebel against our own innate failures and incipients, our own defects, our own problems so that we can gain real happiness, not only for ourselves, but for others. We do it through the practice of this yoga, this Aquarian yoga, by attracting certain spiritual or atomic energies, which are very fine in nature, so that we transmute the consciousness. The term transmutation refers to the prefix trans, which is to carry over, to carry across, to move, to redirect, and also mutation, to mutate to change in one form into another. So our conditioned consciousness can be transmitted through this energy. We can clarify our perceptions so that we develop a very rich spiritual life. But it's important that to do so we work with expedient methods. The Piscean influence before the 1950s, especially, as I said, is marked by its conservatism, its lineages, its disciplines, in that one had to earn the truly revolutionary methods that we are going to explain here in this lecture and also in this course. They had to earn the right to learn those teachings. And because the Piscean influence is very much dedicated to that type of dispensation, different texts of yoga and spirituality were appropriate for that time. So, the founder of the Gnostic tradition, Samal and Viore, explained in different texts, especially kundalini yoga, how the Piscean influence has been replaced by the Aquarian. And that many methods that apply to the Piscean Age, which are appropriate for the descending forces of Pisces into the Earth, were beneficial in that context. Now what's interesting about the difference between Pisces and Aquarius is that in the Piscean influence, spiritual practitioners had to work and become more attuned to their body. In terms of the spiritual involution or influx of forces down into more material states. So, Pisces is known by forces entering into our physical nature. And so that we can learn to master that aspect of ourselves. In terms of an overarching arc of cosmic evolution. But the influence of Aquarius is different. It's now a revolutionary return back to our spiritual origins. So there are many practices like the mudras, hand positions and postures, bandhas, which were appropriate for the descending evolutionary arc or involuting forces into materiality. But now since we are returning back to a more subtle and etheric energetic plane, those practices are no longer necessary. So I know some people can be very attached to doing certain mudras and hand postures when meditating. And it's still acceptable to use them, but it's good to remember that we have other practices that we can use that are appropriate for taking advantage of the current that is now influencing humanity. For example, there are many forms of yoga that are appropriate for teaching children how to walk. There are different skills, different teachings, instructions, and techniques that are appropriate for helping beginners to learn how to crawl, to to walk in a metaphorical sense, in a spiritual sense. But walking alone cannot take you across the ocean to Japan. Neither can it take you to other worlds in the solar system. Instead, you need a rocket, or a spacecraft to do so. You need the appropriate vehicle. And this is what we are going to emphasize today. So, Samalan Vyar mentioned in his book, Kundalini Yoga, that many books have been written about Oriental Yoga. Yoga means union with God. All the books that were written about Oriental Yoga before now are antiquated for the new era of Aquarius, which began the 4th of February, 1962, between the hours of 2 and 3 in the afternoon. So those exercises, such as in many schools of yoga, are a kindergarten for entering a deeper knowledge. We can use them if that is our level of being, and we need to learn deeper aspects of religion. But there is a greater and more profound application of these teachings, which are much more expedient and radical, if that is our wish to utilize. So it's good not to be attached to traditions, but to seriously examine and analyze what we have benefited from, a given practice, and to see and analyze and evaluate, whether we have arrived at what we have sought for. This is why it states in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so Samalan Vior in Kundalini Yoga corroborates this. All mudras and bandhas are totally useless for the new Aquarian era. So, it's good to use specific tools in order to get specific results. If we want to achieve the real heights of divine knowledge, we can enter the Aquarian door and no longer have to be restrained by conservative Piscean dogma. So, let's examine what some of these yogas are. There are many forms of yoga divided within different schools. And we are touching upon a number of them that are very profound and beautiful, which have an Aquarian application and flavor. We study Mantra Yoga, which is the work with sacred sounds, chakras, and powers. We work with Raja Yoga, which is the royal path of meditation. We work with Jnana Yoga, which is scriptural study. We work with Bhakti Yoga, devotion, prayer, and worship. We work with Karma Yoga, which is selfless service. We also work with Kundalini Yoga, which is sacred sexuality, as well as Yantra Yoga, the sacred rites for rejuvenation. And lastly, we'll talk about today Runic Yoga, the Nordic Runes. All these practices complement each other. Here, we're breaking them down into different methods but which have really one unified purpose. So by working with these different exercises, we can balance ourselves. If you've noticed by some of the explanations here or the titles of these yogas, we find that these exercises develop specific aspects of our psychology. So as I said before, some people may be more predisposed towards concepts and intellectualism. Therefore, they like jnana yoga to study scriptures, or people who are more emotional. They like to develop devotion in the heart through prayer and worship, through bhakti yoga. Some people are more action-oriented, moving with the body and serving their communities, which is why we also study karma yoga, which is selfless service. Now these yogas work together to, again, provide a synthesis, which is the expedient awakening of our conscious potential. So we're gonna analyze what these are separately. Mantra Yoga is the work with sacred sounds. The term Mantra comes from the Sanskrit, Man, which is to think, and Manas, which is mind. And Try, which means to protect or to free. Mantra literally means mind protection, or to free the mind through sacred sounds. We see here an image of a man in full lotus with seven energetic centers that are lined up in accordance with his spinal column, which are the different chakras or centers of energy within the human body physiology and energetic constitution. Now these chakras from the Sanskrit refer to wheels or vortices of forces which exist within our subtle interior physiology. There are many levels and aspects of our body, heart, and mind, that are not ascertainable by the mere physical senses. There are instead energies that animate the physical body. There are certain channels or nadis, we say, in the Hindu tradition, that circulate vital force and energy throughout our body, and that permeate every aspect of who we are. Now, energy is very important. We even know this by having enough energy when we get up from rest to subsist and to act in the day. There's a certain energy that's needed in order to be awake physically in a conventional sense. Likewise, we l- learn to work with energies within our subtle interior psychology and inner constitution so that we can activate spiritual perception. These chakras are named or these vortices are named in respective ways in alignment with the spine, as I said. We have Muladhara Chakra at the Cossacks. We have Svaristhana near the prostate or the uterus. We have Manipura which is the solar plexus. We have Anahapta relating to the heart. We have Vishuddha which is the throat. We have Ajna relating to the third eye between our eyebrows. And we have Sahasrara which is the crown. These are important chakras or the main seven that we really study and practice with. But this doesn't mean that there aren't other chakras in the body. There are many others that are important in order to develop stability and homeostasis, equilibrium within our mind, heart, and body in order for us to function because that energy has to circulate and flow in a unconditioned and pure way. Anytime a naughty or energetic current crosses another, it forms a chakra because that's a intersection or crossroads in which those forces meet and therefore they spin and create a type of vortice or wheel of spiritual energy, of psychic, psychological and energy, uh, energetic forces. Now we study these main seven because they are important for Really navigating our spirituality, the spiritual world, our even our physical life. And each of these chakras have different qualities associated with them, different powers and abilities that grant us access towards spiritual reality. Now, it's important to understand that each chakra vibrates in accordance with a certain sound or vibration because certain vowels relate to our chakras themselves. They activate those dormant centers. Because right now, as with most people, those chakras, like flowers, are closed. They're not opened yet. But through spiritual discipline and working with mantras, sacred vibrations and sounds, we open them, we activate them. We begin to circulate energy in accordance with those strata, those seven levels, so that we really Actualize our full potential. Some people may be a little uh, adverse to mantras. Some people think it sounds very weird or unusual. Now, it's important to reflect and remember that uh, mantra, such as O, relating to the heart, is based on a very simple law of cause and effect, which we can verify and correlate with our own speech. We can say that there are certain words that are afflictive and harmful, which produce conflict within our relationships. Using vulgar speech or speaking hatefully towards someone is directing a very powerful and negative energy towards others. But likewise, our speech and our words can be harnessed to speak words of compassion, of kindness and love. This demonstrates to us that our speech and our vocal cords have a tremendous utility We can use speech for harm or for good. It depends on the quality of our mind. And the same thing applies to mantra. Now, sacred sounds help to protect our mind from negativity. They help us to defend our spirituality against corrosion by negative qualities of mind like anger or pride or ambition or fear, uncertainty, whatever it may be. If we feel negative in our mind, our heart and our body and we're agitated, we can work with sacred sounds. It's good to vocalize for an hour out loud, especially because that sound or vibration activates physically in our bodies, those energy centers. When you perform mantras, you're entering a state of mental and psychic purity. You approach the mantra as a tool. This sound is meant to create a type of flow of energy and vitality and creativity within you and it is that energy that is going to give your consciousness the power the force in order to work against your own conditions like anger or resentment etc this is why we work with mantra we want to protect ourselves spiritually from our own negative habits this is the meaning of mantra or mantra it is mind protection so vocalizing these mantras out loud for an hour is really good it helps to calm the body and you're activating not only your energy centers in your body or your vitality but also you're working with the glands of your endocrine system which are really important for spiritual development if you're interested more in learning about how the endocrine system Complement our spiritual practice. You can read a book by Sam Alan called Sexology, the Basis of Endocrinology and Criminology. His basic thesis is that um, by working with these glands and developing them, we gain greater insight into our problems. So it's good to have energy. You can also vocalize mentally as well. Some say that saying a mantra in the mind alone is even more powerful than physically pronouncing it. But it's good to work with both techniques because in one method, by vocalizing out loud, you're pronouncing sacred sounds and working from the outside in, from the physical world into the internal world. But when you work with silent mantra or japa, mantra recitation, in your mind, you're working from the inside out. So both are really good. Personally, I like to do a lot of mantras out loud in the day. And when I'm doing other activities, I also pronounce mantras in the mind. And with enough training and skill, you learn how to work with these sacred sounds, whether verbally or mentally, or even within the very core of our consciousness. We learn how to maintain a state of continual remembrance of our divinity, our own spiritual presence. And that gives us the strength to transform many difficult and negative situations. So this is how we protect ourselves. We learn to have a a calm and kind psychology, a heart and mind that are very alert and compassionate and considerate so that we don't create harmful situations for ourselves because mind precedes phenomena according to the Buddha. We become what we think. So if you can confront the problem at its root in the moment by using mantras, whether verbally or mentally, it's good. So, if you are at work, obviously, I wouldn't go mantralizing out loud in your office or wherever you may be because people will think you're crazy, but you can do it mentally. But when you get home to your own sanctuary, your own temple, your own monastery, your own home, whatever, whatever you make of it, you can practice mantras out loud, especially if you're not going to be disruptive towards neighbors. Now, it's important to work with mantras because these energies help us to stabilize our consciousness, our perceptions. But it's also important to remember that having energy by itself is not the main point. It's good to have energy to awaken our faculties, our perceptions, our spiritual conscious powers and abilities. But merely having energy within one's psychology is not enough because... Chakras are not the end-all, be-all. They're a conduit and a method by which we can access higher states. But merely having active chakras is not going to guarantee a successful spirituality. Some people get really proud about having chakras awakened and powers and abilities. But that's kind of unusual and funny because it's like a person getting really proud and self-conceited by having a lot of fuel in the tank of their car. It's good to have a lot of fuel in your car so you can drive places. But what matters is how you drive your car, which is your body, your heart, and your mind. So ethics and compassion are the essential point. There are different mantras that you can use. I'll introduce one for you, which is very effective for counteracting negativity. There's a video available by Glorian Publishing or glorian.org called Klim Krishnaya. This mantra or sacred sound is very potent for removing negative emotions. So if you find that you're afflicted by very distraught and conflicted feelings, if you're saturated with a lot of sourness, if you're heavy with a lot of negativity, pronounce and sing this mantra in your mind. You can also do it verbally and out loud if you want, but obviously being in solitude is the best thing to pronounce it verbally. But if you're in a place where you're dealing with people who are very challenging for you, you can use this mentally. I've used and I continue to use this mantra many times in my own daily life. And with enough training, you can pronounce it mentally and get the most powerful effects so that you can not be tempted to act in a mistaken way. The mantra is sung and you can click on the video in this PowerPoint in order to access it, but it's sung basically like this. Krishnaya Govindaya Gopijana Swaha If you want to learn that mantra and learn how to sing it to intone it you can study the video available by Glorian Publishing We also study meditation We can say that this is probably the most important practice we engage with in our studies Now meditation has been known by different names and different faiths and religions, and all of them are valid. Here we're giving an excerpt from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, or the path of Royal Raja Yoga. Meditation is the capacity of the consciousness to apprehend phenomena, to ascertain the nature or truth of a thing, its inherent reality. We do so by first restraining our mind. So. Harkening back to the previous slide, we can use mantras to help us restrain our negative reactions to life. Yama means restraint, to yoke. It means that in a moment of your day in which you are tested, perhaps you have a very difficult client you're working with at your job, or a family member who's producing a lot of negative emotions in you, you learn to restrain your mind. You don't act out of anger or pride. Instead, you learn how to fulfill ethical discipline, or precepts, which is known as Niyama. Yama means restraint, Niyama means precept. A precept is as simple as something like, love your neighbor as you love yourself, do unto others as you would have done unto you, to be patient in trials and temptations and ordeals, to work diligently for the benefit of others to be inspired and compassionate and to aid those who are less fortunate than you. So it's if you're afflicted by anger you can respond with love. This is precept. And so once you've developed a really profound and rich ethical life you can learn to really enter deeper states of meditation. It's important to reflect and understand that these are ethics, these are not morals. What's moral is acceptable in one country or time and place but is not in others. Ethics is universal. There are certain habits and behaviors that produce happiness in any context when are done with a compassionate state of mind. So this is something to bear in mind. We're not here to follow rules that someone gave us and to do them just because we were told. That's kind of a Piscean attitude. Here in the Aquarian knowledge and teachings, we learn to take what is useful and to reject what is useless. In this sense, ethics is really the most important thing. It's knowing how to act consciously so that we no longer suffer and no longer make other people suffer. This is the fundamental definition. When you are really mastering restraint and precepts in yourself, your body gets calm. Some people, they approach meditation and they can't sit still. They can't rest because their mind and heart is agitated from wrong behaviors. So after you've cultivated a harmonious space in your mind and heart, You can sit to practice an asana, a posture, and enter a profound state of relaxation, at will, where it's not difficult to do. Without ethics, it's very challenging in order to really have a calm state of being. That's the essential point. And when you're in a posture, you can begin to work with energy. So we work with an exercise called pranayama, which we're going to explain in relation to sacred rites for rejuvenation. In which you work with your breath to circulate vital creative energy within your body, heart and mind. Prana is energy and Yama means yoke or restraint to harness. Notice that Yama or restraint is the first stage of Raja Yoga. Likewise, Pranayama is learning to restrain and harness our creative energetic volatility. All the energies of our mind, heart, and body, we learn to conserve, we learn to circulate, and to harness with conscious intelligence and will. That's how we really enter deep states of calm and withdrawal. Not in the sense of being off of a drug, or basically disassociating from the world in a psychological sense. Instead, pratyahara means to suspend the senses. Yes, it is a withdrawal in the same manner that we don't pay attention to external stimuli. Instead, we enter our internal psychology. But not out of a negative type of mental dissociation, which is associated with perhaps some mental health conditions. Instead, withdrawal in this sense is like a, tor- a tortoise withdrawing its head into its shell. We go inside. You can't do that unless you, don't have, unless you have energy to activate your consciousness so that it can relax, it can go within, and it can see what is there. So energy helps to calm and silence the mind, helps us to relax. So that like an example of the jar with the water and sediment, the sediment stratifies into the bottom so that you can see clearly what is inside of you. Without that basis, you can't really develop serenity of mind, which is dharana or concentration to be able to focus on one thing without being distracted. In that sense, when you're not distracted, you're able to focus on one thing with serene, clarified attention and directed will, you learn to access meditation, which is dhyana. Meditation is learning to receive new information with spiritual, psychological senses. You understand through inner experiences, what the essential nature of reality is for the given object of your focus, whatever you're meditating upon, whatever the goal is that you sit down to practice and do. In this way you enter samadhi, which is ecstasy. The word ecstasy comes from extatuo in Latin, which means to stand outside oneself. It's in this state that you enter real bliss of a conscious and spiritual type. These are divine inner experiences in which you stand outside of your normal range of perception in order to really witness and know the truth. So Raja Yoga is very deep and beautiful. There are different teachings available on ChicagoNosis.org, but also on Glorian.org, which address this path of meditation itself. Specifically you can study on Chicago Gnosis the lecture or the lectures associated with Gnostic meditation. We talk about this eight steps of Ashtanga Yoga in depth, the eight limbed yoga or eight principles and levels of working with meditation. We also have jnana yoga, which is the study of scripture. As I said, it's useful to study intellectual knowledge. Lectures, to receive wisdom from books. But what's commonly neglected in our common culture, era, and ways of thinking is the manner by which we read, study, and apprehend what a book or lecture is indicating to us. Now, what's interesting about the way that many disciples of past traditions have studied, is that they would take a small passage of a book and really meditate deeply on its contents. Perhaps they take a sentence and then reflect only on that. Our habit nowadays is to read 50 books in two weeks. I know it's an exaggeration, but there probably are people who do spend a lot of time like that. Jnana Yoga means knowledge yoga. It's what we apprehend from the written word. And it has a very beautiful and useful place within our spiritual discipline because the teachings of the different masters of religion and spirituality have provided their personal inner experiences within diverse scriptural forms. And if we learn to really read with an alert and awakened consciousness, with intuition, not relying so much on our reasoning, but on our heart, We can gain access to inspiration and knowledge and insights that are very transformative. And it is in this way that we learn to appreciate what these different masters taught, these different luminaries. And instead of just reading book after book and compartmentalizing and categorizing what we've read in a certain label or box in our mind, instead we learn to look at things with a fresh view. The best way to study is, again, as I said, take one passage Read a sentence or two that's really challenging for you or really deep and inspirational, even if you don't know the meaning. And then focus and meditate on that. This is how many spiritual schools have studied and are studying now in our institutions. We don't want to necessarily just fill up our minds with knowledge by memorizing what different teachers have said and what terminologies mean and what the languages indicate such as with commentaries. Instead, we want to really witness the realities of what is written from personal experience. And this is why we have to meditate in combination with study. Now, study can be very profound and deep. I recommend taking the time to really digest what you put into your mind. Because the problem with many Westerners especially is that being very intellectual we take a lot of knowledge into our intellect and yet we don't transform it we don't understand what we've read this leads to we can say psychological constipation in which we don't digest what we've put into our mind and therefore it can become a great source of doubt and skepticism and pessimism and this is very unfortunate and it's happened with many people However, if you really take the time to practice and try to experience what you read, then you gain a lot of faith. And faith simply means confidence born from verification and experience. Because you see that your spiritual experiences are talked about in different books by certain masters. In this way, you really verify and understand that you're not alone in your experiences and that these are objective realities. This is also why it's important that we study from pure sources, meaning study from those who have really been established, whose teachings resonate with your consciousness, what you have really testified to from facts, such as the founders of many religions. But also in our tradition, we study the works of Samal and Vior. And personally, I've had a lot of blessings in being able to meditate on certain passages that he wrote, but even having internal experiences, spiritual experiences that I later read about in his books, which confirmed and validated my own personal testimonies, so that was really inspiring. It's a wonderful yoga to enact the knowledge of spiritual teachings. We also study Bhakti Yoga, which is the devotion of the heart. Perhaps the greatest Bhakti Yoga yogi, we can say that we have known in the West, is Jesus. He demonstrated with his life the profound teachings of yoga and meditation and prayer. He was so dedicated to his spiritual work that he allowed himself to be crucified physically, to be condemned and persecuted, to be spat upon, to be beaten, to be ridiculed. And yet he only responded with love. This is a profound devotion. Now what's interesting about his example is that when we really know divinity from experience, our own inner spirit, we develop great love, great compassion, because we understand that all beings have divinity inside. And not only do we respect our own innermost spirit, but we also we respect the spirit in others. So that we tolerate their mistakes. Because all people are afflicted with anger and resentment and negativity and doubt and hatred. By learning to access superior emotional qualities which have nothing to do with sentimentalism or hallmark cards we open the doors to genuine mysticism. We could say that The intellect in itself is very useful, but that tends to predominate in most Western people. Instead, what we have is a very giant head stuffed with a lot of books and knowledge, but a very deficient and weak heart. Bhakti Yoga is really important for Westerners especially, but it can be very difficult for beginners because some people find devotion very foreign to them, very alien, very confusing, very difficult, because how can you have devotion towards something that you've not experienced? But the truth is that we develop devotion and our innermost intuitive faculties when we learn to follow our conscience, our heart. The heart that says that a certain behavior and action is wrong. The whole world can agree with it, And yet, we know that for us, that trajectory is harmful, that position, that direction. Personally, what led me to spirituality was following my heart. I didn't have a school or group, a scripture or teaching, a lecture to guide me. Instead, what happened was that I was suffering a lot in life. And I wasn't willing to face at the time that my own behaviors were harming me. But eventually, I began to follow my innermost conscience, which is the voice that says, this is right and this is wrong. Even though the intellect and our reasoning can fight and argue and claw and bite against us. It's a very painful process, but as in my example, I was really dedicated to understanding the nature of my own reality and my sufferings so that I would find an answer and I dedicated myself with a lot of devotion to searching and looking for spiritual instruction until finally, I did find Gnostic teachings which helped to explain and confirm what I had been doing already. That gave me faith, a lot of conviction. Sometimes, Bhakti Yoga may be as simple as, again, praying in some people's eyes towards a statue or to a divine figure, a painting, a master, a prophet, in our own innermost divinity. But again, that can be foreign for some people. Difficult to apprehend and to swallow because we have inherited a very material culture, which has conditioned us. But the beginning isn't following your heart, listening to your own conscience, what is right and what is wrong. And as you verify more and more that your superior, positive actions transcend negative states of suffering, you gain real faith, real verification and conviction that these teachings work, that they are practical, that they are transformative. It's in this way that we begin to experience superior emotions, which for most people is very difficult to apprehend. Like conscious love, really loving our neighbor, especially loving one's enemies. It's something that we have to aspire to and develop gradually because it's not easy. But the way that we do it is by relying on our heart, the conscience, so that by accessing our intuition of knowing right action from wrong without having to think about it, we open the doorways to real experience and witnessing of divine reality. And the more you experience that divine principle in you, the greater your devotion and compassion for others, of serving others, of working for their, uh, their benefit. Which is why we study Karma Yoga. Karma means cause and effect in Sanskrit. Some people think of karma as a punitive law of retribution. You get what you deserve, according to the Western philosophy. But well, this is a mistaken attitude because karma simply means causality. Cause and effect. Every action has a consequence. And if there are superior actions or also inferior actions, and therefore they produce superior or inferior results. Karma yoga is based on helping others, helping our communities. We all have different qualifications and skills, different idiosyncrasies and talents that are necessary in this world and when we discover what our unique talents are we can capitalize on them. In that way we learn how to better help humanity in whatever level or qualifications or skill set that we have. Karma yoga is especially important within the study of Aquarian Yogas because If we really wish to overcome our own suffering, we have to alleviate the suffering of others. This is a universal divine law. If you're sick, help the sick. If you are lacking knowledge, give knowledge to others. If you're lacking spiritual experience, teach others how to experience it. It is in giving that we receive, says St. Francis of Assisi, within the Christian tradition. By learning to serve others, especially those who are difficult, who challenge us and create pain within our interior, we learn how to transform our own pain. We don't focus so much on ourselves. If we're really in a rut, we're suffering a lot, we don't know what to do, we're confused, It's important that we reflect on the needs of others because our own selfish desires keep us hypnotized. You want to break the shell of selfishness and despair? Learn to help those who are less fortunate than yourself. For some people, it could be teaching, giving knowledge, giving instruction of a spiritual type. For some people, it's supporting their schools, their communities, servicing others, helping the poor, helping the homeless helping the sick, whatever it may be. If we want to not be so hypnotized by our own self-concepts and anxieties and needs, we should cater to the needs of others. This is a great, powerful tool that helps dispel a lot of the fogginess that can afflict us. And this is a fundamental law of nature. By giving to others, we receive. So if we want to receive a certain object of spiritual benefit, we should seek to give that in return, and not expect anything as a reward. This is selfless service. It is compassion. And this is the reason why spiritual teachings exist, because by giving to others, we help ourselves, but not in the selfish sense. I know in the beginning, it's easy to want to do good deeds so that we can benefit, but with training, you begin to lose that selfish attitude and really give from an uncorrupted and genuine heart. We also study kundalini yoga, which is a very popular science today, or teaching, in which there are a lot of theories and beliefs, and also, unfortunately, a lot of misconceptions. Now, we have in this image, Padmasambhava with his consort, Yeshit Sogyal who are in the sexual act. What's important to reflect upon is that as an image of Tibetan Buddhism, it constitutes one of the highest teachings of that tradition and pretty much any religion itself in its core. It's how a married couple, man and woman, can combine their creative sexual forces in a state of ritual purity and conscious love in order to harness those energies and to awaken divine spiritual capacities. Some people have called it kundalini. Some people have called it the fire of Pentecost. Some people have called it the Holy Spirit. Some people have called it the feathered serpent, quetzalcoatl, within the Aztec mystical tradition, or kukulcan amongst the Mayans. This is the energetic force of our divine feminine reality that awakens within the practitioners who are properly prepared. Now, it's important not to just look at this image with a lustful mind, although this is where people begin. Padmasambhava made a point about this essential practice of Tantra, sexual union, or the harnessing of a continual flow and influx of energy without ever releasing it. This is Tantrism. The meaning of Tantra means continuum, continuity. It's how we take those forces and conserve them. He said that in order to do that, one cannot have any lust any passion, any animal desire. He said, lustful people do not enter the path of liberation. So some people get very confused when they study this aspect of religion and they say, how is it that Padmasambhava could be sexually united with his wife? And yet, he says, lustful people cannot enter the path of liberation. The answers are really simple. Don't engage with the sexual act out of lust out of desire. Instead, enact it with love. Very different quality. Lust says, I want to satisfy my desires, and love only wants the happiness and spiritual edification of the other. When we learn to harness and conserve that creative potential and to activate it through sexual union between husband and wife, man and woman, by conserving that power and living an ethical life, we can awaken what is called kundalini. It is the power of the Divine Feminine. It is the Divine Mother of all religions. You can study the lecture called The Divine Mother on ChicagoGnosis.org, especially the, the course, Beginning Self-Transformation, where we talk about how the Divine Feminine is represented in many religions. Now, the important thing to remember is that she is the power of an intelligence of love, of creation, of the universe. Therefore, she only rises up the spine of those practitioners who have proven their worth, who are really dedicated to their ethics and purifying their viewpoint, who perceive life with selflessness, with altruism, with compassion. Understanding that life is transient and interdependent, that nothing is permanent and stable except for the reality of love. Now, There are many people who have attributed psychoses and addictions or mental imbalances to Kundalini. And this is really fundamentally mistaken. We we disagree with this. Because the Divine Mother Kundalini only can empower those souls who have really upheld the highest ethics. It doesn't happen in people who are wasting their creative potential, who are squandering the sexual energy. It's a very specific science. It's really deep. We practice this if we're married. It is an important aspect of genuine Aquarian yoga. And we're now giving this sexual teaching very openly to humanity because people need it. It's very easy to go on the internet to find sources that are very impure and that help to produce a lot of suffering for humanity. So we're now being very explicit with this knowledge. You can learn about this teaching in a book called The Perfect Matrimony by Samal and Vyorm where we learn how to master the creative intelligence of God so that our love blossoms from a state of ritual purity, a verification of spiritual states. Very deep, very transformative. Now we're going to explain a couple exercises known as Yantra Yoga. Now Yantra Yoga is commonly known as the Tibetan rites or sacred rites for rejuvenation. With these exercises, we harness the creative energies of our body, of our mind and our heart, in a form of ritual. There are six rites in which we basically harness our conscious energies. We can ask for Certain results are petition to divinity, our divine mother, kundalini, so that we can receive healing or insights and understandings about our own defects or perhaps even to help us to eliminate certain faults that we've understood in our meditations. Yantra yoga or sacred rites for rejuvenation are very powerful. They can help us to heal sick organs, help us to maintain flexibility, vitality, and health on a mental, emotional, and physical sense, but also spiritually speaking. So when we work with the sacred rites for rejuvenation, we begin by crossing our hands over our heart, our right hand over our left, and we petition and pray to our Divine Mother Kundalini, the Divine Feminine within us, who basically can intercede for us on behalf of her husband, which is the Divine Father, the Holy Spirit within certain traditions, We invoke the Divine Feminine because she is the intercessor, the reconciliator between our terrestrial personality and the severity of the Divine. So the Holy Spirit, as sometimes mentioned in many other traditions, has the power to heal. But we have to know how to work with creative energy first, conserving it and transforming it. We work with our Divine Mother to beg her, please intercede for me on behalf. Of your Divine Husband, the Holy Spirit, we can say, in order to accomplish this goal. We can ask for healing of a sick organ, the awakening of a chakra, the understanding or intuition to a certain problem, the elimination of a defect. There are many uses we can apply to the sacred rites. It is a form of ritual with our body in which we take certain postures and positions in order to invoke the aid of our inner being. with the first right after you've made your petition you begin to spin from left to right <clears throat> you have to be very careful with this not to spin too fast so that you become disoriented and lose balance <clears throat> you can place your right hand up your left hand facing down extend it out as in this image keep your eyes open when you spin so that you don't lose your equilibrium and when you spin from left to right you want to do it 12 times you spin in the same direction that you're turning a steering wheel to the right we do this because this positively activates the chakras in this position or in this posture in this movement we are circulating the vital forces of our chakras themselves so that we awaken those powers and as we spin we pray to our inner divinity we can say either verbally or mentally Be healed, be healed, be healed. Work, work, work. We're commanding our sick organs to work, to be healed by this divine Aquarian energy or influence, the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can gain health, happiness, and balance. There's a mantra that goes along with this. It's very popularized today. It's called Open Sesame. Now, unfortunately, this saying has been abused today. It's actually a very powerful mantra. It comes from the Arabian Nights. The story of Ali Baba and the 40 thieves. What's interesting about that myth is that Ali Baba goes to a cave and commands the stone that is blocking the entrance to move. He says, open sesame. This mantra has the effect of opening the boulder and pushing it aside so that he can go into the cave to try to save treasure that's trapped there from 40 thieves interesting if you've uh, ever studied the teachings of kabbalah especially the number 40 is very significant this 40 or these 40 thieves relate to our own defects who try to steal the treasure of our soul the energies of our consciousness so alibaba goes into the cave in order to extract the treasure which is a symbol of going into our own mind to extract the truth into the subconscious caverns of our own occult behavior, that which is not readily accessible by our senses. So what's interesting about the name, the term Ali Baba is that in from the Arabic, if you tr- transliterate it into Hebrew, it's Eli Abba, which means my God the Father. So this is a beautiful symbol of how we pray to God the Father and God the Mother within us. In order to perform a magical healing, to work with the treasure of our creative energies. So we spin 12 times, saying, Be healed, be healed, be healed. Work, work, work. Open sesame, open sesame, open sesame. And when you are done spinning 12 times, or you can do more if you like, uh, just be careful not to fall over, you bend your knees, keep your legs and feet about shoulder length apart. Place your left hand on your thigh, try to gain your balance, and then you place, crouching over or bending forward, or bending your knees, your thumb, your index finger, and your middle finger, place those three fingers on your third eye, between your eyebrows. You put some pressure there, you put some pressure there because as you're somewhat bending down, you're helping to gain balance so that you don't collapse after spinning which gets easier and better with practice. But also you're taking those circulated forces from your spinning and concentrating them upon your third eye. And that way you basically awaken that chakra very deeply. The next part is to lie in the form of the cross. You continue to pray, intensifying your supplication, whatever it is that you want to work on. You can imagine whatever sick organ in your body needs healing or imagine the desired result that you long for, for comprehension. You can imagine above you floating in your vicinity a white dove of immaculate fire descending into you, giving you life and vitality and force. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. So, pray deeply. Be healed, be healed, be healed. Work, work, work. Command your consciousness to work for you. And whatever sick organ you're trying to heal, but also whatever you're asking of the Holy Spirit, you're begging to be given that gift. Perhaps an awakened power, a chakra, a faculty. Afterwards, you perform what is known as the Viparita Karani Mudra, which is the legs... Lift it up in the air. You can place your hands behind your knees. Engage in this posture and continue to pray out loud and verbally and mentally if you wish. Next, the third rite is you kneel and you perform pranayama. So going back to the exercise in Raja Yoga of working with energy, you're performing interchangeable nostril breathing in which you're circulating the vital winds in your body, in your mind, and your heart. Close your left nostril with your index index finger. Keep your right thumb out and inhale through the right nostril. Concentrate on the forces that are entering into you. You can imagine that the energies are circulating down from your base of your spine up to your brain and then to your heart. Close your nostrils with your thumb and your index finger imagine this energy being retained within you and then exhale through the left nostril so that the forces are done circulating up into your heart so with inhaling through one nostril you're sending the energy down through an energetic channel from your nose down to your cossacks because there are two channels that intertwine the spine we call them ida and pingala in yoga And when you work with each nostril, you're working with each separate cord within your spine. The left nostril relates to the right testicle or ovary, and the right nostril relates to the left testicle or ovary. So they're intertwined, they interchange. The forces of your creative sexual energy rise up from your caustics and your sexual organs to your brain and then to your heart through energetic nadis. And when you work with the interchangeable nostril breathing, Inhaling through your right nostril while closing your left with the index finger. You breathe in the vital forces. You hold them with closing your nostril with your right thumb and your right hand. Retaining that force and then exhaling through the left nostril so that that energy flows in you. And then breathe through the left nostril. Inhale to repeat the same procedure. Close your nostrils with both your fingers, your thumb and your index finger, and then exhale through your right nostril. That constitutes one pranayama. You want to perform 3 total. Pray to your divine mother to help you work with this force consciously. Afterward, you perform a posture in which you kneel back. You kind of let your abs do the work, great for keeping your physique up. Left hand or hands at your sides, arch your back backward. Keep your head up a little bit tilted and continue to pray using the invocation. Be healed, be healed, be healed. Work, work, work. If you find that verbally pronouncing it's difficult, you can do it mentally. Because sometimes the posture is going to be difficult to perform. So with any of these exercises, you don't want to strain your body. You want to do it gently. Do not force any of these postures on yourself if they are harming you. Instead, these are rites for rejuvenation. They're not meant to hurt you. So you got to be careful when you practice. With this next posture, as you're training your body, you extend your feet outward, close together, heels together, your hands behind you, about shoulder length, and you arch your back in a backward direction. Keep your head tilted up a little bit. Continue to pray. Be healed, be healed, be healed. Work, work, work. And again, open sesame, open sesame, open sesame. You can visualize as well. Make sure that you're really praying from your heart. The next posture is the table. You extend your back upward. Make sure that your arms and legs are spread enough far apart so that you're not straining your body too much. You don't want to lean too far forward with your knees or too far backward with your shoulders, but you want to keep a good balance. Continue to visualize and deepen your prayer. You then repeat the pranayama three times, breathing through your nostril, right nostril, closing both. Exhaling to the left, inhale to the left, close both nostrils, exhale to the right. That constitutes one pranayama, you want to do that three times. Repeat that process. Next, you're going to perform the fifth right, in which you look like you're doing a push-up, your head is extended upward, your torso is above the ground, your feet are spread apart along shoulder length are closer together, but your hands are about shoulder length. And then you're going to alternate positions between bending your torso down towards the ground without touching and pressing your, or or moving your head slightly down towards your chest. And then extend back outward again with your head up and their torso away from the ground. You want to do this for as many times as you'd like. And then afterward, you make an arch, continuing to pray, Visualize, supplicate, deepen your prayer. The important thing to remember is that these positions are meant as a form of communion with divinity. Your prayer and your conviction and your dedication and devotion are what are most important in order for this to be effective. So you in this last or in this posture you basically arch upward. You can lift your feet up um, towards you as you're moving so that you can arch far enough, but again, don't strain yourself too much. The last rite, it's mentioned in the book, Sacred Rites for Rejuvenation by Samal and Vior. There's known as the Viparita Karani Mudra in which like the previous postures you did before with your hands behind your knees, you can do this against a wall in which you lay backward, your feet up, You pray to your Divine Mother to beg the Holy Spirit to transfer the energies of your mind into your heart or your solar plexus and the solar forces of your solar plexus to your mind. Now, in a manner of speaking, we have forces that relate to our intellect, which are, we could say, lunar in nature. They tend to be more negative forces. Our mind tends to be very cold and conditioned. But we have a lot of forces in our solar plexus that we can transfer through the help of the intelligence of the Holy Spirit by having them circulate in the form of an Holy Eight or an infinite from the solar plexus over to the head. The solar forces of the sun of the abdomen rise up towards the head and then the lunar silvery atoms, the moon-like lunar atoms of the mind go into the solar plexus. So the solar plexus is like a reservoir of force and energy that is like a battery. We carry a lot of force in our abdomen. Which is where we get the source of many gut instincts and feelings that we tend to be very unconscious of or mechanical with. But we can learn to take that reservoir of force from our abdomen and take it to our mind. So that we have a spiritually illuminated intellect. The good thing about the Viparita Karani Mudra is that the blood flows towards the head. So that we're more oxygenated in our brain. This helps to awaken certain faculties and abilities. If you want to learn more about that, you can study the sacred rites for rejuvenation. Here we're just giving a summary. There's also a sixth rite associated with the sacred rites, known as the Vajroli Mudra, which we don't have the time to cover here today, but the book is very extensive and explains it. We'll also talk about, lastly, the runes, the Nordic Yoga, which we have some videos available online you can study. Basically, the runes are postures in which we put our body, While vocalizing certain mantras in prayer. In this way we vibrate with the forces of nature. The Nordic language or futhark relates to certain postures and positions that are conducive for accumulating solar divine energy from nature. It's good to perform these runes outside in a park or in one's backyard if you have one. In the forest, in the woods, by the ocean. So that you can assimilate more divine energy and prana from your environment. If you want to learn how to practice the runes, we have a book called The Magic of the Runes, but also a video on the seven vowels, which you can study and apply to your daily life. The runes are very effective for charging yourself with divine force. We also have a course on Gloria.org called The Runes, which you can study if you want to go more in depth into this practice. So practicing daily are very helpful. In conclusion, we have some references you can use. We mentioned some of them. Kundalini Yoga by Samal and Vior, Sacred Rites for Rejuvenation. The Spiritual Power of Sound, which is works with mantras and chakras. And The Magic of the Runes for learning the Nordic Yoga in depth. I know we covered a lot, but I open up the floor to questions. We have a question. You mentioned you need energy to withdraw and see from a clearer state of consciousness. I would love if you could expound on this more, as this is the first time I heard about this idea. I have noticed in my own life that if I don't have enough energy, I don't feel like engaging in my spiritual practices. And I am curious why there's a connection between our energy and withdrawing, approaching things from a higher consciousness. Is it just because our body is not relaxed, thus not receptive? So. Think of it like how a vehicle operates with better fuel. If you put the wrong type of fuel in a car, you can destroy it. Also, if you put the most fuel-efficient energy into your vehicle, it'll operate better. It'll drive better. The same thing with our consciousness. Our consciousness is a profound capacity to perceive life, which is beyond any limitations of thought, feeling and impulse. But in order to really enact that conscious state from experience, we need to save energy. We have to save emotional energy. We have to save mental energy and we have to save creative energy. Now it's impossible to light a lamp if you don't have the fuel or the wick there. And in the same way that a light on a lamp has more clarity when the container it is in is washed and clean, likewise, our consciousness can reflect greater light based on the purity of our mind. So we need energy in order to awaken, first off, to be able to learn to experience and perceive our inner reality from an objective sense. But in order to do that, it's important to Not only have energy, but to learn how to use it well. Because when you direct energy intelligently, consciously, when you withdraw from distractions in the mind and from external senses in meditation, you learn to fully engage with your own conscious interior. You can purify your vision, so to speak. And obviously, if you don't have energy, like in physical life, you you can't live, you can't work. Someone who has insomnia has a very difficult time being physically awake, and not, but still not being able to sleep. It, it has a serious effect upon one's psychology, when we don't have enough energy present. We even find that if we abuse our intellectual energy, we can develop sicknesses like schizophrenia, mental illnesses, paranoia, delusions, because the mind, which could operate like a vehicle in its own respective orbit, is deficient in fuel. It's lost its vital values, and therefore the engine breaks down and stops working. You find this in people who are very engaged with the intellect without balancing the other parts themselves. Likewise, the heart, if it's exhausted of its emotional vital principles, creates sicknesses like depression, morbidity, bipolar, many emotional sicknesses and diseases. And even the physical body can deteriorate and fall apart when it's not Fueled with sufficient, creative, vital energy. People who abuse themselves through boxing and sports and other difficult activities be, uh, become paraplegic or damage in their body. So in the same way that we need energy to exist in life, we need these creative forces harmonized and balanced to use the consciousness well. And as you said, if you don't have enough energy, you can't engage in spiritual practices. You're just not inspired. You're not going to be there. But saving energy, directing it well with consciousness, that begins to clarify our perception so that day by day we perceive more and more. I invite you to study resources on meditation such as Meditation Essentials on Gloria.org, but also Gnostic Meditation on ChicagoGnosis.org. Explains how when we use energy we clarify our perceptions. So, we have another question. I am very curious to know what you think about Christianity. I relate with many values in the Bible, but most Christians seem quite mind-controlled to me, and I feel Christianity needs to integrate broader spiritual ideas, such as yoga and reincarnation and more. What do you think are the merits and limitations of Christianity, even when people are striving to live a righteous, selfless life? So we explain in other courses that there is a public tradition and there is an esoteric tradition. Every religion has a public, exoteric domain, which is followed by millions of people. And then there are hidden, secret, esoteric teachings within those traditions that were never given publicly. Now, in relation to the Piscean era, that knowledge was underground, but now we're giving in the Aquarian era itself this esoteric knowledge freely for all. So Christianity as a teaching is a very beautiful tradition. It has very deep symbolic roots, which many of its practitioners and adherents don't necessarily understand or follow just as any people of any religion who may adhere to a faith out of dogma also contradict the values that are embedded in their faith. So I've met many great Christians, many bad Christians, many good Muslims, some bad Muslims, many good Gnostics, but also many bad Gnostics as well. So just because someone adheres to a tradition doesn't mean that one's really spiritual. In fact, what is spiritual about a person is that they are working to eliminate defects and work compassionately for others, to serve others. So Christianity, as a tradition, has an esoteric dimension known as Gnosticism, which we're giving a course on our website, ChicagoGnosis.org, about the Gnostic Gospels. You can study that course if you want to learn more about esoteric Christianity. But also, Glorian.org has a course called Esoteric Christianity that studies the heart doctrine of that faith so the esoteric version is very different from the public where you're in the esoteric christianity you find reincarnation and spiritual ideas are integrated very beautifully and supported and substantiated by scripture more importantly so any religion or like christianity any faith can be limited when we only follow it blindly when we use it as a paradigm and a dogma to interpret what we perceive without actually helping us to experience reality objectively. So morality is useful in its place in the sense that having some values can help orient certain people into living a more ethical or kind and compassionate life. But merely sticking to an outward form without experiencing its inward principles is not enough. It's deficient. We have a question. With sacred rites, if the petition chosen does not heal an organ or awaken a chakra after a session, do we keep only asking for that particular healing then every day until it is healed with the practices? Or can we change our petitions? Should we? So to answer that question so far, I've known instructors practicing the sacred rites would uh, perform one petition for two months, not changing it, because... Results come with time and practice, with consistency. So I would recommend stick to one petition for at least two months. If you really want to go deep into it, keep going with it. But this applies to many practices such as eliminations of egos as well, where we focus on one ego or a defect over a long period of time until we gain results and comprehension. So it's good to focus on one thing and to really practice it deeply extensively the question continues if we keep only asking for one thing and nothing happens for a long time what do we do then how do we know if what we're asking for is what we really need or it can even be allowed to be granted now there are many factors that go into play in terms of working with the sacred rights some people they practice for a long time and don't get results the results that they seek and it can often become filled with morbidity and despair or doubt that this even works. Now, it's important to take into account that the quality of our practice is not determined by merely sticking to a schedule. But it has to do with the quality of our heart. How sincere we are. How dedicated in our consciousness in terms of our attitude for approaching divinity because sometimes we can approach divinity with ambition and that is never rewarded so some people get frustrated because they ask for something they don't get it and often become frustrated and even confused and disoriented and even uh, doubtful as i said so what to do then if you're not getting what you asked for i would even reflect on what it is that one is asking and how our divinity knows what we need before we even ask or even know for ourselves. Sometimes it can be good to practice the rites to gain experiences and insights into what you need to work on to help guide you in even initiating and sustaining a certain practice. So, divinity grants unto us what we need, not what we want. But it's also difficult to ascertain in our own experiences. The difference between need and greed. What is it that we crave? Like spiritual experiences? Or what is it that we really need to benefit in our daily life? I recommend that you focus on goals that will help you orient yourself in daily life specifically. Or even opening your heart and asking from divinity, praying, please show me what is it that I need. Please help me and performing the rites in that way. Because sometimes, if we ask for healing for a sickness that's not going away, we have to take into account that there are certain contexts and karmic forces at play that we can't necessarily alter or control, but with a lot of patient work. So be patient. Persist. If you know that there's something that you need in your daily life that you have to aspire to, then keep asking for it. Don't give up. Don't flag. But be careful about what your attitude is and how you approach divinity. Because the sacred rites are a ritual. They're very sacred, very divine. A way of communicating with the truth. But again, we have to make a difference, distinction between ambition and need, as we were saying. Pray for healing. Be dedicated. Be consistent. So... This question also continues. How do we know if what we're asking for is what we really need or can even be allowed or granted, as I said? Otherwise, we're not the practice become redundant if we find ourselves asking for something that is never to be granted with the sacred rights practice. This is why other practices are also essential because we have to meditate deeply and investigate within our comprehension what our situation is. I know sometimes... When we have difficult problems in life, it's very difficult to ascertain what reality is, the truth, the right way of acting. But this is why we combine these different yogas together. We work with them in conjunction with one another. If you find that you're not getting the result you want, if you feel like you're you're practicing in a redundant way, then analyze what you're doing. Reevaluate Because some people need to practice sacred rites at certain periods in their life. They don't necessarily do it all the time. But we work with the certain yogas in conjunction with the understanding that these practices fulfill a specific need. But if it's not granted, again, be patient. Meditate upon what it is that you want. Comprehend what your desires are for that longed-for objective and ask divinity to show you in your meditation what is going on. And that way you can have some comfort and conviction about what it is that divinity wants for you and what he has and she have planned for you. We have a question. You said the exhaling through the left nostril affects the heart. What does exhaling through the right nostril affect? And what was the name of the video you mentioned about the runes? So, in terms of inha- inhaling and exhaling through the nostrils, Uh, Just to clarify, when you're inhaling through either nostril, you're imagining the vital force and winds entering through that nostril and descending in a circuitous way, in the form of a entwined serpent, curling around or moving across the spine in the form of the infinite, or moving down in the form of a like a curving line, like you see a a light wave, if you've studied physics or a radio wave down into your Cossacks. When you retain that energy, when you close your nostrils, you are imagining that that energy is mixing within your sexual glands, is being retained and is even rising up your spine to your head. And then when you exhale through the other nostril, you send the energy to your heart. That's one visualization you can do uh, that's not specified specifically in the book, Second Rites for Rejuvenation. He just gives a very basic pranayama. You don't necessarily have to go that deeply with your visualization. The important thing is that you feel the energy circulating in you and that you interchange your breathing through your nostrils. Ho- open up your right nostril. Close the left nostril with your index, the index finger of your right hand. Inhale. Close with your thumb, the right nostril, retain the energy, lift the index finger and exhale through the other nostril. And do the same from in the, in the other nostril as well. Inhaling, holding, retaining, and exhaling. Your prayer is what's going to be most efficacious or best. It's what's going to work and cause the energies to flow in you. And in terms of the video for the runes specifically, you can access those on glorian.org under videos, or go onto YouTube and look up Glorian Publishing. There is a video for the seven runic vowels. And we talk about seven vowels in relation to our spinal column, the seven chakras, because these seven sounds activate the seven main chakras of our spinal medulla. These vowels are explained in the video. They are vowel E, E, O, U, A, M, seven balls. which if you study the literature that we provided as well it goes very deep into that any other questions i know we covered a lot we went over time but i appreciate you for asking questions and listening in we'll have definitely a lot more practices and exercises to share with you in relation with this course so i thank you all for coming